0: My Year of Bad Sex, written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Part Two Already crushed and bruised by Oliver's departure, the end of the most meaningful relationship of my life, I then suffered a trauma of immense power and depth. Something unimaginable occurred. I mean that truly, not figuratively. You're welcome to conjecture or envision how such an event might be. You will never come close. My life and another man's life were to change irrevocably. On the evening of the last day of 2015, I was driving on a dark country road in Norfolk. My car hit a man who was trying to cross the road after getting off a bus. I sat useless and terrified on the curb, sobbing and shaking while others took control. An air ambulance took him to hospital. Police arrived. I was interviewed. The next few days have long hours of blurred ignorance and screaming moments of horrific clarity. The images and sounds, the feelings and thoughts will never fade. The man was Michael Rawson. He was in his early seventies and lived in an assisted care home, not two hundred metres from where he collided with my car. I clung to a hope that I'd be able to visit him, talk to him, have some kind of conversation, an explanation, an apology but that vision of standing by his bed holding a bunch of flowers never became reality. Michael Rawson died on January the 6th, 2016. <music> Details of the resulting trauma needn't concern us here. It's sufficient to say that it continues and always will. I have learned to employ the phrase... I live with PTSD. Although I'm not quite a fan of the D part of that, the disorder. Too medicalized an overemphasis on what is wrong with me, the disability, not all the other abilities I have struggled to reclaim. So living with is good. Not diagnosed with, or even had in the past tense. It's now, here again, any time someone casually says an interview was a complete car crash, or they stood there like a rabbit in the headlights. Seemingly harmless words wrench me back in an instant to those appalling seconds seared forever on my brain. We are resilient creatures. I'm not seeking sympathy. Just your understanding, if I explain that I can't do certain things, go to certain places, watch certain films. I will politely but firmly decline, and probably not explain why. I am looking after myself. Sometimes self-care is called being selfish. Fair enough. Two expressions for the same process, one empathic, one pejorative. Frankly, if I know I'm doing what I need and you think I'm being a self-indulgent narcissist, that's OK. Your disapproval or misunderstanding will not be enough to tempt me into a discomfort zone. In the zombie weeks after the accident, I was just about able to respond yes or no to things that were suggested to me. Sometimes in the first days of January the question was simple but still too complex. Do you want a cup of tea? I don't know. How can I know? What's the right answer? My needs would change in a moment from I'm so cold to can we open a window? From I need to be alone to please don't go. I was exhausted, drained of energy, but sleep was impossible. Closing my eyes took me back to the moment of impact. For months I couldn't bear darkness and lay in bed all night with the light on, hoping to drift off. If I did, the nightmares jarred me awake. Random, contradictory feelings sparked and rattled through me. My head was in chaos, my thoughts a jumble. Nothing made sense, nothing at all. If this, this could happen, the laws of the universe no longer applied. Slowly it did become clear what I needed, and I was unashamed in claiming it. There are people who say, I'm no good at asking for help. I discovered that, apparently, I am. I knew I must be treated gently. I was a fragile package that might disintegrate from too rough a touch. A casual bump could do it. Handle with care. Loud noises were unbearable. Large groups too threatening. Bright lights an assault on my senses. There was so much I needed to defend myself against. Where to find the solace and comfort I craved. Someone described my hypersensitivity as losing a layer of skin. Yes, that's exactly how it felt— and it was my skin, the largest organ of the body, that was aching for sweet attention. I mentioned to a friend that I was thinking of getting a massage, and she told me about a masseur who had recently started his practice in the same building as my office. He seems nice, she said, and he's offering a special introductory rate. She introduced me to Nathan. Nice didn't come close. He was gracious and good, lively and brisk. I muttered that I'd had a bad time over Christmas, and wanted to book an appointment. He turned his powerful positive beam of a smile on me and said, Don't worry, we'll soon put a spring back in your step. I was phased by his cheery optimism. This wasn't about having a step with a spring. It was fundamental nurturing I coveted. No, I said quietly, I've had a really bad time. A really, really bad time. He dialed the smile down several notches and nodded. I had the sense that he got it. Not that he got all of it for a long time. It was months before I let him in, or let myself out. But the twice-weekly appointments became a haven of physical consolation. Nathan's hands stroked and eased my gnarled muscles, and that was lovely in itself, but the psychological effect doubled the benefit. Every movement, every variation of direction or pressure had a meaning. Nathan seemed to be signalling to me through his fingers, thumbs and palms that I was all right, I was valued and cherished, I was safe. Not despite the accident, not because of it, but regardless. Everything I'd ever done and said and thought and been in the past and in the present and everything I would do, say, think and be in the future was fine just fine. It was a profoundly intense and robust experience. I would float away into vivid daydreams with blue colours and butterflies and furniture featuring prominently. I had no idea why, and felt no need to attempt interpretation. I lay there, secure and cared for, and that was everything I needed to survive. I cried sometimes, too. Ever since the accident I've cried a lot. I still do. Not necessarily every day, but often. One day last week I cried three times, just a little, but moved to tears. Sometimes I'm alone, sometimes not. I will never apologize for tears. They are necessary, healthy, and appropriate. Last week I wept as I talked about road safety and how people's carelessness angers me. It's all right, the other person said kindly. Yes, I know it is, I responded a little sharply, implying that my tears needed no sanction. Medication was prescribed, but I didn't take it. I sought out therapy, and that was invaluable. But nothing touched the parts of me that Nathan touched—my flesh, my heart, my soul. I discovered that, paradoxically, being naked was crucial to the feeling of safety— Making myself physically totally vulnerable, and yet still finding sanctuary, was extraordinary. The trust was total. I had no agency. I lay there and allowed Nathan access to my physical being and my psyche. He didn't have the details yet, but he knew I was broken. His care and attention, as I tell him to this day, helped to put me back together again. Since the nakedness really mattered, and at Nathan's prompting, I agreed to think about joining the naked bike ride in the summer. It seems odd now, looking back, but it made perfect sense at the time, exposing and owning my fragility. Something else was being prompted too. My sense of myself as a sensual being. If I could receive these strokes in this way, could I also experience myself as a sensuous creature? Yes, I could. After many weeks of lying on Nathan's table, face down through the hole, drifting in and out of consciousness, soaking up his oily traction and softening to his digital palpation, I realised I was enjoying the touch in an unexpected but wonderful way. I was aroused, physically, sexually turned on. When his leg came near my hand, I would make and keep contact, nothing explicit, just blurring the edge between friendly and and concupiscent. This hadn't happened for so long that it was an alien sensation, a distant recollection being dredged up from the slime of my consciousness. What was this buzz, this epicurean licentiousness, this carnal lust? I remembered it, and I welcomed it. It felt good. It felt right. I felt ready. Ready. Nathan had revived my fervour, so it seemed self-evident that he would be the target of my urge. I didn't hide my arousal from him. How could I? I was naked and supine. When I left his treatment room I allowed the thank-you hug to sustain a few significant seconds longer than would indicate mere politeness. After several weeks of teasing hellos and goodbyes, our farewell embrace finally included a kiss. It had been over a hundred weeks since I'd kissed a man. It's a wonder I knew what to do. Or is it like riding a bike once learned, never forgotten? No, it's far more exciting, with much lower risk of getting a puncture. Whoever instigated the kiss, I was keen to continue along this path. However, Nathan held his professional boundaries. I can't do anything here, he said. It's my office. Well, I replied, come to my office then. He wasn't my client, so I had no qualms about using that space for erotic exploration. We didn't go much further, to be honest, than we already had. i had been naked at each of our meetings anyway. This time, some of his kit came off too. The accepted euphemism would be we fooled around. I know that sounds like a pillow fight or doing silly voices, but you know what I mean, don't you? Don't you? Well, put it this way. Kissing? Mm Mm-hmm. Sucking? Mm Mm-hmm. Fucking? Uh Uh-uh. I had to curtail our quasi-adolescent groping on the floor to catch a train. Ironically, I was going to a school reunion, sight of many an actual groping through my teenage years. Nathan and I agreed to meet another time. We would go for a drink and then come back to my place. For sex, was the unspoken part. This was going to happen again, and happen in the bed I'd shared for years and years with Oliver to make love, not shag or fuck or fool around or bang or bonk or hump or screw. We shared passionate, tender, sweet, raunchy times again and again for the whole of our time together. Our sex life isn't what it is, clients at my psychotherapy practice would sometimes say. Well, after two years, what can you expect? I can expect it to go on being great and getting better, I wanted to reply, like me and Oliver. Perhaps you're not doing it right. But I had permission to do this, to shag with Nathan in that Muji bed. Not Oliver's permission, my own. I timidly granted it to myself and nervously accepted it too. I was entitled to this. I had no idea what Oliver was doing now in the underpants department, but since he had left me to wrecky pastures new, I doubted he was totally celibate. In fact, he had once snapped at me in a peak when we were discussing how it would work if we parted. Well, I'm not going to live as a hobbit. I filed that one away under, what the fuck, and said nothing. The temperature was already high enough. It was many hours later that he sidled up to me as I was cooking. I think, he said sheepishly, I think I meant hermit. Bless him. We laughed, as we always did about anything, eventually. So, the permission from self, the promise from Nathan. What could possibly go awry? Yes, the course of true lust never did run smooth. Two days before our tryst I had a text. Johnty, I have to cancel our sex date. I've been told I need to get checked out. A recent hookup has tested positive for chlamydia. Let's rearrange once I'm clear. I'm sorry. A sex date? A sex date? Is that what we say now? A recent hookup tested for chlamydia? My, how the dating scene had changed since my last dalliance, which began by me sending a handwritten card in the post and Oliver dashing to the library to go online. A grave new world indeed. A week later, Nathan informed me that we could now meet as he was in the clear. In the clear, apart from being HIV positive. I'd known that for a while. It was something that had come out in our discussions during the massages when we talked about our pasts and our futures. Like many of my attitudes, my experience of HIV was seriously out of date. In the 80s and 90s, I'd been involved with the Terence Higgins Trust, Originally, I'd given money, then realised I wanted to give more, and began to be a buddy for people living with AIDS, PLAs, as we said, for a while. It was a humbling honour to be alongside those men, as they approached the end of their lives. One beautiful man, Michael, asked me to help plan his funeral, and to speak about him when the time came. I told him I would, of course, that I'd be proud to. His parents wanted to carry out their son's wishes, too, but the day before the sad event, The Catholic Church stepped in. I was not allowed to speak, because you're not family. My atheism was further entrenched that day. Michael also asked me to take away his VHS porn tapes, so his parents wouldn't find them after his death. He offered them to me, and I feigned gratitude, but they were far too mild for me, barely porn at all, all romantic soft focus and too much left to the imagination. "'I took them to my local Oxfam shop "'and asked the woman at the counter "'hesitantly if she would take them. "'Oh, yes,' she said enthusiastically. "'We have lots of those handed in. "'A man comes every month from Twickenham to collect them.' "'After he died, Michael's mother offered me "'various items of his elegant clothing, "'including Armani's suits. "'I declined and asked instead "'for the tattered MS dressing-gown "'that he was usually wearing when I visited. "'I still have it, and every time I put it on... I'm reminded of that sweet man and the dignity he showed in the face of bleak oblivion. But that was thirty years ago. I knew that, as people said, HIV is no longer a death sentence, but I didn't yet know enough about medication and how different people live with HIV. Undetectable equals untransmissible was a phrase that hadn't yet entered my vocabulary. Why would it? On the first awareness of the virus in the eighties, I was in a monogamous relationship. After that ended, I took the precaution of using condoms on the rare occasions I had sex during the 90s. Then I met Oliver in 2000. We went together to be tested, negative, before discarding protection, and we didn't play away from home. Now, nearly three years after Oliver's departure, here I was about to have a sex date with a man who was HIV positive. Naively, I thought I might be in danger, although what we were going to do posed minimal risk to me— Yes, we would established, as a mate of mine puts it, who was the socket and who was the plug. But it wasn't as simple as getting on with the rumpy-pumpy. A man was coming to my flat, and we were going to do sex to each other. Oh. My. God. The practicalities, the burden of expectation. A day before the rearranged encounter, I was checking that all would be well for us. Food, drink, over the carpet clean sheets on the bed, plus the necessary accoutrements for the sex itself, condoms and lube. Um, how much detail do you want, by the way? I'll try to tread the line between fact and fucked. All seemed okay. The day of the actual you-know-what, I'd be making final preparations on my body, too. Get a back-and-shoulder wax, trim my chest hair and pubes, tweezing out any stray greys, and shave my balls. Being a top, the plug, not the socket, that was all. Not too much, really, compared to the bottom's pre-match routine. After our lunch in Soho, we would walk back to my flat, I would clean my teeth, gargle with the new bottle of antiseptic mouthwash, and ta-da! I'm ready for my close encounter now, Mr. DeMille. And then I noticed it. There was a mucky splodge on the wall over the bed. I must have recently swiped a moth to death, and its flimsy remains had left a skid mark a couple of inches long. I hate moths. Always have done. If I see one flapping about, I think it's going to fly into my mouth, and then I'll swallow it, feel it wriggling in my stomach, where it'll lay eggs, and eventually... Oh, no, I can't bear to think about it. I don't have the same qualms about butterflies. Moths with a bigger clothes budget. Or flies. Mosquitoes, or... Wasps, bees, bats, birds, helicopters, planes, hang gliders, or anything else that's airborne. No, no fear at all that they'll zip between my lips and set up home in my gut. Nope. Just moths. So if there's one within attacking distance of me, it has to go. fresco dinners with me at chic harborside seafood restaurants in Mediterranean or Caribbean resorts are, I should warn you, not relaxing affairs. I'll be monitoring every flitting creature around every candle on every table like some hypersensitive novice air traffic controller terrified of missing something. The splodge was evidence both of my superior fighting skills and my laziness in leaving it there unattended for, what, days? Weeks? Months? What a slattern! But nobody had been into my bedroom for two and a half years. Just me and Rupert. Oh, Rupert is my teddy bear, by the way. Maybe that's why he looks a bit, well, moth-eaten. But nothing comes between me and Roop. I asked for him as a gift for my ninth birthday, and despite my parents' misgivings, aren't you a bit old for a teddy bear? They were probably hoping I'd want a football. They did as I requested, and he is still my constant bedtime companion, willing to be cuddled, squeezed, pushed onto the floor, or, as has become increasingly necessary, shifted out of the way, if I have a gentleman caller. He could write his own memoir my year of watching bad sex. His tolerant expression never alters and he asks for nothing in return. We draw the line at Cuddles. Even if Roop was anatomically correct, we wouldn't do that sort of thing. It would feel like incest. I took a sponge to the splodge and made a bigger splodge. I let it dry, sprayed it with something from under the kitchen sink and attacked it again. Same result. It was now a different shade of beige, but four times the size, from Isle of Wight to Sardinia. Who knew a tiny moth could leave such a large legacy? So, what to do? Obviously I couldn't invite a lover, however temporary, into my bedroom while it was substandard. I'd be distracted and ashamed of my deficient hospitality. Worse, I'd be constantly on edge, anxious that Nathan would look up from his semi-recumbent position, notice the offending brown smear, and ask— what the hell happened there? That must have been quite a night. Although, in the 2020 hindsight of 2021, maybe not, chaunty, maybe not. After all, I recently saw a brief video someone had posted online of himself fucking a man in a full-body latex suit with a puppy mask on. Normally I'd have found that quite a turn-on, don't judge me. But not this time, because the radio was on and there was a commercial for Carphone Warehouse playing. Loud, too.' or is that what made it more exciting for them? Takes all sorts of licorice, as my granny used to say. I wondered if I could hang a picture over the smudge, but a. it would look very weird, not being central on the wall, b. the flat was aggressively minimalist, like an Austrian euthanasia clinic, and c. I didn't have any pictures.' I paid a visit to what my sister calls the Hardmongers a few blocks away, and bought some white paint and a new brush, as all the others in my butch-box were stiff with gunge, and in no state to gloss over, ha-ha, or emulsion over anything. I painted the wall, moving the bed to take the new brightness down to the floor. No skirting-boards in this squeaky-smart urban living-box, so I had to mask the carpet with newspapers? Who buys newspapers any The Guardian Online wouldn't do for this task. So I went to the corner shop to buy one especially. They'd sold out of my regular paper, so I had a moment's dilemma of wondering which other paper I didn't mind being seen buying and walking home with. What if I bought the Express and encountered the neighbour? The horror! And the awkward squirm to hide it inside my jacket. I chose the telegraph. My parents would be proud of me. For buying it, not the reason for doing so. I didn't pass anyone I knew as I scuttled in, spread the sheet, determinedly not being distracted by any Brexit or royal headline that might enrage me, and got on with making the wall look clean and smart and a suitable backdrop for a sex date. Being anosmic, of course, I had no way of knowing if I'd stunk the place out. I opened the windows and hoped Nathan wouldn't get a migraine from the painty pong. Now I could relax and anticipate the joys to come. Almost. An hour later I was in the bathroom when something caught my attention. That tiling was so shabby. What if Nathan asked for a shower, before or after our exertions, or even during, and stood there looking at my grubby grouting? I'd hate him to think I was the kind of mucky person who lived with stained silicon, even though self-evidently I was. I dashed back to the hardmonger ironware shop for a tube of white tile sealer. Back home, then back to the shop for the metal gun to apply it and home again. I got a Stanley knife from the butch box and gouged out thin slivers of gunge. Then I squeezed the new white filler into the narrow cracks, wondering if this was a symbolic precursor for what was to follow. Done. The next day, Nathan and I had lunch. We came back to mine. No comments about the wall or the paint smell. No showers were taken. We did the sex thing. And I could relax in the knowledge that the wall and the grouting looked fucking great. My Year of Bad Sex is written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. The music and studio production are by Andy Mills. My Year of Bad Sex is a Protocol Production.